Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April the 21st, 2017. This is episode 1989 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today because it's the Friday show, right? End of the week. And uh, we have the Expert Council Show. Those are always great. And I have a really interesting lineup for you today of not just council members but questions. And I have the debut of a new council member who I just know is going to be an incredibly valuable addition to what we're doing here at TSP. So what do we have today? We have the ins and outs of buying a vehicle with a salvage title with Charles Sandville. Who's Charles Sandville? Also known as the Humble Mechanic. He has joined the expert council. I think you will really like what he has to say on this issue. We have a question on how homeschoolers are going to make friends and have social lives from Mike and Sula Prees. We have a question for Nick Ferguson on Comfrey. Is it really a dynamic accumulator? Uh, we have a question for Stephen Harris on choosing the right LED headlamp for search and rescue. A question for Michael Jordan on making pollen patties and swarm traps, which is great stuff. We have a question on dealing with an, what I'm calling an environmental cough for Doc Bones. What exactly does that mean? Well, you'll hear about it when he talks about it. And we have a question on concepts like the alkaline diet, acid-alkaline diet ratios for Gary Collins. And then we have a question for me on the difference between hobbies and legitimate businesses, specifically relating to YouTube creators. So we'll have all of that more in just a bit. Before we get into that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Guys, right now, do you know I have personally about 100 trees, vines, and bushes from Bob Wells Nursery on my property? Over time, they will produce season after season of edible products. They look great, too. Bob Wells is always my first choice when buying new trees, vines, and shrubs for my permaculture work. Check them out at bobwellsnursery.com today. Hey, folks. When I started TSP over eight years ago now, the first company to ever offer to sponsor the show was SafeCastle. And they've remained a loyal sponsor ever since February of 2009. And did you know they give away a lifetime discount membership to all MSB members? They do. And that can save you big money on everything you can imagine for your prepping needs. And with SafeCastle, I do mean everything. Check out SafeCastle.com today to learn more. All right, let's take a look at the year that was the episode before we get into it today. We have the year being 1989 because the episode is 1989. This is... Uh, Very memorable year for me. I, I began uh, my senior year of high school this year and then finished the 1990, immediately joined the Army. Um, a lot of the stuff that's mentioned in here I really never paid attention to because my life was heading somewhere and I was leaving childhood things behind, so like the video game stuff. I, I didn't know that some of the stuff you'll hear about in video games happened in this year. I do remember the big stories, and I remember a lot of what this year was like. And I think it's a it's a good year Uh, for me, because it's when I can honestly say my life began to change for the better. All right, let's take a look. We have, it's a hit, the World Series earthquake. We have the 1989 coronal mass ejection that causes a blackout in Quebec. <clears throat> First one was from Alex Strug, that one, the one on the blackout is from Southpaw Ben. And we have the current state of gun control and Nerf guns contributed by Alex Shrug. Notable births this year. Anton Yelchin, who died in 2016, age 27, was crushed by his car in his own driveway. He played Pavel Chekhov in the Star Trek movie Reboot. His driveway was on an incline. His car rolled, pinning him against a pillar. His car was under recall for transmission problem that caused the rolling. In music born this year, Taylor Swift 
in TV, Ashley Benson, who was in Pretty Little Liars, Brie Larson in Raising Dad, and Hayden Panette in Claire in Heroes. Don't know any of those people. <laughs> in movies, sorry, I don't. Dan Dan Daniel Radcliffe of Harry Potter. Know him because my son was nuts about Harry Potter. Lily Collins in The Blind Side. Mia Wachowska in Alice in Wonderland, and Brenton Thralls, who was in The Giver. This year in film, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It is the search for the Holy Grail. I think every kid saw that that year. I did not. I don't think I've seen that movie yet. I think I saw the first two and never the third Indiana Jones movie. I didn't really know that this movie existed. To this day, seriously. Batman it is the dark. And look who's talking. Bruce Willis is the voice of a baby. And The Little Mermaid, Driving Miss Daisy in Field of Dreams. If you build it, he will come. This year in TV, uh, the release of Baywatch, Doozy, Doogie Howser, M.D., America's Funniest Videos, Cops, Bad Boys, Bad Boys, What You Gonna Do, and Madonna's Like a Prayer, Pepsi commercial is banned. Apparently the, the, the commercial is confused with the music video, which is controversial. Golly, it's not like Madonna handed a Pepsi to a police officer. See the recently banned Kendall Jenner Pepsi commercial. I, I didn't know anything about the Kendall Jenner thing, but um, I, I do remember this. So I, I, I was like, I think that was actually, for Madonna, a good commercial. So I looked it up, and it is on YouTube, believe it or not, this commercial from 1989. I have a link to it in the show notes. If you watch it, it's kind of inspiring, no matter what you thought about the song or the music video that was controversial. Um It was pretty cool, and there was no reason for it to be uh, banned. Not this commercial, anyway. In music, Like a Prayer from Madonna, Eternal Flame from the Bangles, Another Day in Paradise from Phil Collins, and Love Shack from the B-52s. Uh, Love Shack, that, that whole album from the B-52s, we, we played that it, driving around in my buddy's Nova like crazy, cruising up in Shamoke in Pennsylvania. And uh, Eternal Flame, I mentioned that I was like madly in love as a teenager with Susanna Hoffs. Uh, when this video came out, every teenage boy in my high school was like, Did you see this video? Yeah, I, I remember that well. Uh, this year in video games, Nintendo's Game Boy is released. Good battery life will make this handheld game system a winner, and children will never take their eyes off screens again, in my view. SimCity is released. A game-level editor is turned into the game itself. Populous becomes the first god game. The player acts as a deity, influencing actions within the game, and eliminating the unbelievers. And Herzog's Wii is the first real-time strategy game released on Sega Genesis. Yeah, I had no knowledge of any of this. I was kind of a computer nerd in high school on some levels, uh, but I was into what we could do with computers. I wasn't big into gaming. And uh, just, I didn't, you know, I, I played video games as a kid, but by this point in my life I was making a turn and I was spending more time fishing and hunting and living in the woods than I was uh, playing video games. In other news, the XL, Exxon Valdez runs aground, spilling 240,000 barrels of oil into Prince William Sound. The captain had been drinking. Charles Keating and the savings and loan crisis will cost $200 billion in bailouts. The Chinese man faces down tanks during the Tiananmen, Tiananmen Square massacre. His image will become the icon for the democracy movement. Cold fusion is here. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Nuclear fusion at room temperature is considered BS or bad science. Natural disasters. The world's deadliest tornado kills 1,300 in Bangladesh. We usually don't think about tornadoes outside the United States, but they do happen. Hurricane Hugo causes 71 deaths and $8 billion in damages in the U.S. And a solar flare brings down the Hydro-Quebec power grid, which is one of our main stories. But I'm going to read for you. It's a hit, the World Series earthquake, because I remember this very well. Because I was in front of my TV and I was watching this game when this happened. 
This isn't the big one, nor is it as big as the Frisco quake of 1906, but it's big enough. A 6.9 magnitude earthquake hit South Oakland, California, as Game 3 of the World Series begins, and it is broadcast live and color nationwide. The fans at the stadium are safe enough, but they're not going home anytime soon. The double-decker Nimitz freeway has collapsed, crushing cars like aluminum cans. Yes, I know, people are inside. Some of them will live, but if the quake had hit on any other day, thousands would have died. Everyone is either at the game or watching it on TV, not on the road. The upper deck of the Oakland Bay Bridge collapses, but only one car is dumped into the lower deck, killing the driver. The rest of the damage is caused by a phenomenon called liquefaction. When the earth shakes, water from below is pumped up into the soil. Depending on the type of soil, and clay is the worst, it will turn the consistency of Play-Doh. The entire first story of one building simply sinks beneath the earth. Other buildings sway and nearly collapse, but they don't collapse. Foundations pull out of the ground. It is leverage caused by the building moving back and forth like a rocking chair. When it's all over, 63 have been killed and 3,757 have been injured. The World Series has saved lives. My take by Alex Shrug. After the 1906 earthquake and fire, all the rubble was pushed off into San Francisco Bay, creating an artificial peninsula. Since that time, the city expanded and built over the rubble. The earthworks on that peninsula were never engineered, so some of the most spectacular damage occurred there. I strongly suggest reviewing the pictures of the damage caused by this earthquake and then look at the number of people killed. 63. It's not a miracle. It's due to local building codes, the preparedness of the population, and in the case of a little luck. Uh, if my home in Austin, Texas were moved to California, it would be destroyed in the first major earthquake because it was not built with earthquakes in mind. It would also cost a lot more to build if it was. Uh, indeed. Um, here's why I selected this one. This is what I remember most about that day. I was sitting in my, uh, my grandmother's living room, and we're watching the World Series. My grandfather was still around back then, and he loved baseball. And all of a sudden, this earthquake hit. And we watch, and we, I remember the pitcher standing on the mound, like putting his hands on his hips, kind of waiting for it to end, because earthquakes just happened in California. And it, inside the stadium, it didn't seem particularly like a bad earthquake. And it kind of rumbled, and it stopped, and I think everybody just thought the game was going to go on. And then we started getting video from what was going on outside. And it was one of those moments, if you saw it when it happened, it wasn't as dramatic as like 9-11 or the Murrow Federal Building bombing, but it was like that. The image in your mind of that freeway collapsed, that double-decker freeway just collapsed. And the, the surrounding damage was, again, it's burned in your brain if you saw it when it happened. I think if you look back at it, you might get a feeling for it, but it's not the same as like seeing it happen. And what I remember most about that day is what people did. There wasn't riots. There wasn't looting. People grabbed ladders off service trucks, put them up onto this overpass. I'm not talking about search and rescue people. I'm talking about average people climbed up into the rubble and drug their fellow citizens out. It was a bad day, a really bad day, for the people that died, 63. And it was a bad day for the 3,700-plus that were injured. But in my view, it was a good day for America because it was a day where Americans actually freaking act like, acted like Americans. We need more of those days, and I wish we didn't always need a disaster for them to happen. It's my take by Jack Spierko. All right, folks, let me remind you that the main way that you can support the work that we do here at the Survival Podcast is by joining the Member Support Brigade, or MSB for short, 
And you hear me talk all the time about the over 60 discounts that you get, but let me tell you some of the other things you get. How about nine free eBooks, including Planting Trees the Low-Cost Easy Way, How to Build Top Bar Beehives, Basics of Sprouting, Building an EPAC Kit, Getting Your Household in Order, Building a Traditional Clay Oven, Building Aquaponic Systems, Secrets of Ballistic Strikings, and Squanto's Garden. All of those are free eBooks that you get only as an MSB member. You can also download MP4 versions of many of our YouTube videos. You get zip files of every episode of TSP ever produced. And how about videos of the workshops here at Nine Mile Farm that we do in the spring and the fall? All of that and more available as an MSB member. You can sign up for as little as five bucks a month to give it a shot or $50 a year. That comes out to 18.3 cents an episode. With that, let's go ahead and take our first question of the day and the first expert counsel appearance ever of Charles the Humble Mechanic on the ins and outs of dealing with a vehicle uh, that has a salvage title. Charles, take it away. What's up, TSP? This is Charles from HumbleMechanic.com answering your car-related questions. This one comes from Wilson. Wilson's asking about buying a flood or salvage titled vehicle. He's looking to add a diesel truck to the fleet of cars. This will be a third car for him and his family, and he wants to know what the deal is with buying a salvage-titled car. Is there a deal to be had, or is it really not worth the risk? So, Wilson, great question. Let's talk a little bit about what a salvage title is. A salvage title happens when a vehicle meets a certain criteria. So, the most common one, really, is accident damage. You get in a minor fender bender on an older car, it's really easy to total a vehicle. If it's a newer car, it takes a lot more. Typically for a vehicle to be totaled, which then moves to a salvage title, it has to be about 75% of damage to the car. So a car worth 10,000 bucks takes about $7,500 worth of repair before it's totaled. This actually adds up really quick and the less value the vehicle has, the faster it happens. Whether you're fixing a brand new car or a 10 year old car, a lot of the stuff is still gonna cost the same. So paint still costs a lot of money. Car parts are way expensive, and it's really easy to get to that value. You guys may remember a while back when Jack's truck was totaled, the cost of the repair exceeded that 75%, so they deemed it a total loss. Jack got his check to buy another car, and then what happens is the vehicle either goes through the body shop and gets repaired and back on the road, maybe it goes to an auction or something like that, in order for it to be either scrapped or become roadworthy again. If they decide to make the vehicle roadworthy again, the title to the car is deemed branded. That means forever and ever, the title will come up with a big old red flag saying, hey, something big time has happened to this vehicle. So if we know the car has a salvage title, it's not a huge deal. If we're not sure, and it may not be a bad idea anyway, we want to run a Carfax on the car. This is going to give you like a life report of the vehicle where it was purchased, where it's been titled. Some service stations will report to Carfax, so you might be able to see maintenance history. If this car has had a great life up until the time it got in a small accident and it was minor, then it, it may be a great deal. If it's been abused throughout its life, well, then maybe not so much. After we run the Carfax, we want to do our own personal inspection on the vehicle. We, of course, want to look at the vehicle as a whole. Does it run? Does it drive? Does it shift? If it's four-wheel drive, does the four-wheel drive work? Sit in the driver's seat and touch all the buttons and make sure everything functions. Understanding you're buying an older car, but we want to make sure everything works. 
now rather than figure out something doesn't work down the road. Since the likelihood of the vehicle being wrecked is pretty high, we want to take a look at the gaps in the car. What I mean is the gaps between like the door and the fender, or the front door and the back door, or in the truck case where the tailgate shuts. We want to look at the hood and make sure that it lines up properly. Now you're thinking, Charles, I, I have no idea what this, what you're talking about. How do I know if it's lined up properly or not? Well, the cool thing about a car is this stuff's really easy, unless it's completely screwed up, because you have two sides. So you're going to look at the driver's door, you're going to look at the gap at the back of the door and make sure the top and the bottom are about the same. Look at the gap in the front of the door between the fender and the door. Make sure the gap at the top and the bottom are about the same. Then what you're going to do is you're going to go to the other side of the car and you're going to look at it over there. And they should be pretty close. You can take something like a piece of paper and mark on it and, and kind of line it up that way. That's a little more in-depth than I would probably do. Typically, the eyeball test works really, really well. Or running your finger down the gap is another really good way just to check the gap and make sure that it's not completely ridiculous. If it's really bad, you'll see it right away. Once your eye goes to those gaps or those body lines, you'll see it right away. Someone with a trained eye will see that kind of stuff from a mile away, in addition to like imperfections in the paint and overspray and paint drips and things like that. But we are buying an older car that's had damage, and a lot of that stuff's not really going to affect the performance of the vehicle. If the car passes that test, our next step is to get it professionally inspected. This is going to be the best 100 to 150 bucks you could possibly spend. Take it to somewhere that knows this vehicle well. This is advice that I always give anyone buying a used car when you're spending more than like 1500 bucks, 2000 bucks. This is a small investment to make sure that you A, know all the things that are wrong with the car, B, have the opportunity to run as far away as you can from the car, or C, gives you leverage when you're negotiating the price. And the biggest, most important factor in this is do it before, before, before you buy the vehicle. Once you buy the car, it's yours. There's nothing that you're going to be able to do about it. But if you do this before, you at least have some leverage or the decision to not buy it at all. This is probably one of those times that even for the folks that hate going to the dealership, this is the time to go to the dealership because other than a real specialty shop, a lot of places, the general service places, aren't going to know this vehicle inside and out like the dealerships do. So I would take it to either a specialty shop or the dealership, ask for a pre-purchase inspection. They're going to go through the car top to bottom, left to right. They're essentially looking for things to sell you, so they're going to find all of it. Um, and also let them know that the vehicle's got a salvage title and there may have been damage. Ask for like an accident evaluation or a structural evaluation and have them look at some of those things as well. And if they're really cool, they'll even take you out to the shop and show you what they find. They're going to look at things like where the frame mounts up to the body, all the body parts and how they're bolted up to see what has happened to this vehicle. Another really cool thing about cars is they typically don't lie. They leave witness marks, they leave imprints. You can usually tell when a vehicle's had damage or some kind of repair because it doesn't look right or a bolt's not painted when it was from the factory or you can see tool marks on certain parts of the car. So for someone that's a professional, these kind of things really jump out and stand out and they'll be able to find that stuff pretty quick. We also wanna make a phone call to our insurance company. There's a lot of insurance companies that flat out will not cover salvage titled vehicles. Yours might be one of them. You'd like to know that before you buy the vehicle. 
So give them a call and ask them. Tell them you're going to be buying a salvaged car. In addition to that, ask what kind of coverage you can get. If you're buying a $2,000 car, just liability insurance is not a big deal. It's what we all have to have anyway, and having the bare minimum is not a problem. But if you're spending eight to 10 grand on a truck, I would probably still carry full coverage because what's it going to take to replace that truck? I'd hate for you to get in another wreck and it, you know, be out 10 grand or a tree fall on your truck and be out 10 grand because you could only get that liability insurance. So that's another question you want to ask. It may be more expensive for the insurance or they may not cover it at all. So from my standpoint, it all boils down to this. How safe is this vehicle? Was the damage to it structural? If that's the case, I'm not super comfortable. If a rock popped up and hit the oil pan and knocked a hole in it and all the oil spewed out and now it just needs an engine or it needed an engine and that was the total loss, fine. I'm cool with that. That's mechanical. That's easy. But when it comes to structural damage, I get really uncomfortable. Remember that almost everything in a car is built around safety. When we start heating metal and cooling it or welding new pieces on, now it's not the way it was from the factory. So we don't know that it's going to behave in a collision the way the vehicle was designed to behave. If you open up the hood and look on your, along your fenders, you'll see little ridges and bumps and you know, who knows what they're for? Well, they're actually for accidents. They're actually meant to absorb and slow down that impact so it's not all transferred into the cabin and then into you. So when a vehicle's repaired, even if it's repaired really well and looks nice, you don't know that the structural integrity is the same as it was from the factory. Things down to the radios are designed with safety in mind. On most modern cars, the radio buttons, if you whack on them hard enough, they'll actually collapse into the radio. And they're meant to do that, because if they didn't do that and your face hit it, then it's gonna collapse into your face. So safety is so important and it's so ingrained in modern vehicle design that anytime we start screwing around with it and making certain repairs, it can affect the second accident in a lot different way than the first accident was. So it's not usually the first accident I'm worried about, it's that second one that it becomes a problem. And we wanna make sure we're not putting our family in a position that can be a bad one because the vehicle's not behaving the way it was designed. So I hope I haven't completely scared you off of doing this, Wilson. I think it's actually a way you can save a bunch of money, but personally, I wouldn't really seek out the salvage title truck. I would seek out one and it might cost you 2000 bucks more up front, but odds are if you even follow a lot of those steps that I gave you for the salvage truck, odds are you're going to have a better quality product unless you have an in somewhere and you know someone that rehabs these kind of things, then it might be a huge savings. But I would look for one without that branding on the title before I seek out one that is branded. Because remember too, at some point, if you ever sell this vehicle, essentially the vehicle has no value. If you look up what a salvage car is worth on like kellybluebook.com or something like that, or Edmunds, it almost always says it has no value. So keep that in mind too for resale value. If that's something you're concerned about, the truck basically has none in the eyes of the world. So you're probably gonna have a harder time finding that person that doesn't care about salvage title. That's gonna give you the money that you're looking for. All right, Jack and TSP, thank you guys so much for having me on the Expert Council. I really appreciate it. It's awesome to be able to give back to this community. 
That's done so much to help me out, so I really appreciate that. Remember, guys, send your car questions on over to Jack so he can send them over to me. I'll also be cutting these clips out and putting them on YouTube so you can check them out there. And if you want to see more of my videos, head on over to HumbleMechanic.com. You can check them all out there. Guys, thanks so much. I appreciate you, and I'll talk to you next time. Well, great stuff from Charles, and uh, I have to say, I am humbled by the humble mechanic being part of what we're doing and by an email that he sent me, uh, and I, I'm very grateful to have him with us. I wanted to read this email for you guys. I had originally planned to uh, read this email for you on Monday's show, um, but you know, we got a question in for Charles right away, and he got an answer back right away, so I, I thought it would be really kind of cool to read this for him because this is a big weekend for Charles. This is a big day for Charles, and here you go. TSPC, you lost a daily listener. Well, Jack, you finally did it. I'm no longer a daily listener. Like many of the TSP community, I listen on my way to and from work. For the last six years, you have been playing on my radio with your preparedness and lifestyle design and build-a-business talk. So you know what I did? I built a business. As of next week... I'm leaving my full-time job to run that business. Yep, I'm no longer driving to work. I am simply walking out to the shop to do what I love. Thanks for helping me understand that I can do it. It's not easy, but I won't I won't want I wouldn't want it any other way. To the TSP community, please take ownership of your life. Go out and make things happen. If I can build con a content creation site, work a full-time job and do the more important job in the world, be a great dad and to my daughter, you effing can too. I will still be listening, Jack. Keep kicking ass. Cheers, Charles. HumbleMechanic.com. Oh, and TSP Expert Council member. Woo. Um, this is like, this is why I do this. It, it's, it's when I hear from someone like this, and I hear stories like this all the time, and, and I see people actually changing their life for the better, And, and be, I mean, you can't be more prepared than being completely self-employed in your own business because you're not going to fire yourself. Um, this is a good day for Charles. This is it. Monday morning, you know, is the day when he wakes up and he doesn't go to a job. Um, I think it's a good weekend for me. Uh, being able to end this, uh, this week on that note, I mean, it's awesome. But we still got a lot of show left ahead of us. So what do we have up next for you? We have a question now for Mike and Sue Laprise on, uh, on homeschooling from a standpoint of, well, how's the kid going to make friends? Because we have a couple, and one member of the couple's not in on this because the kid has to make friends. How would you ever make friends as a homeschool kid? How are you going to get socialization? Mike and Sue, take it away. This is Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com, designing the life you'd love to live. For the expert counsel... Hi, Jack. One of the great values of TSP to us is listening to old episodes. We don't watch TV, and as MSB members, we get to download the oldest podcasts. There's so much timeless, valuable information for this city boy who never had those opportunities growing up. It's just valuable information that I just listen to over and over again and absorb it. And I want to thank you for it, Jack. It's been life-changing for me. Anyway, today's question comes from Corey. Corey has a son who's turning five in June, so he's getting to be kindergarten age. And Corey and his wife are running out of time to talk about this later, which is, if they homeschool, how will he make friends if not in school? So the first order of the socialization question really comes down to the family dynamics. 
So you can have an antisocial kid in a homeschool family, in a public school family, and it really depends on how the parents interact together with their children, with their extended family. So the first rule of socialization is to teach your son how to be a friend. And that happens at home. So at home within your family, you want your child's best chance of a healthy socialization to be a healthy family. And there's the simple skills we all know that are good that we forget. And that is manners, saying please and thank you, learning how to share. And one of the concepts that's sadly lacking in our culture is there isn't always more. It's a great thing to teach your kid before they ever hit a group or a playground to know all those things. And one of the fun things that we've been doing in teaching our younger kids now is in the permaculture world, there's the, you know, caring for earth and caring for the people. And so in tending a garden and taking care of animals, those are some really healthy ways to teach children how to behave with others and how to treat others. And so all of those conversations that you have in your home before you ever go out are going to set your child up for the great adventure that's to come. So there are lots of opportunities to have op- to, to learn to make friends and to find friends even when homeschooling. So if you live in the city, a lot of those opportunities are word of mouth. You know somebody, you find somebody who's homeschooling and they'll tell you about things. If you live out in the country, and Corey lives out in the country, he lives about 100 miles from us, uh, and we, we live in the country, and so for us, Facebook tends to be a place where a lot of homeschool families find meetups. The internet is the fastest starting point today. Google homeschooling wherever you are in Texas, and you'll find information, usually in your town, that'll talk about meetups for homeschoolers, and it'll tell you what time they meet. A lot of those meetings are at local parks. There are a lot of other opportunities uh, that are paid organizations, so uh, scouting. And I know Corey had some concerns about the religious aspects of scouting, but um, we find that scouting uh, isn't all that religious. So we have two sons who are Eagle Scouts, and our third son just wasn't interested in scouting. He liked camping, he liked the activities, he didn't like the scouting program. And scouting has different feels to different troops. So some troops will be very conservative, some troops will be incredibly liberal. Um, So you can try those out, especially at, um, I think it starts at six years old for scouts, and you just go and try a few troops or packs at that age until you find one you like. And remember that scouting isn't just an hour a week. Uh, there are campouts, there are field trips, so there is uh, a lot of times uh, to make friends. And if you make friends, then you start um, meeting up with those friends outside of the paid organization. Another organization would be something like 4-H. Most 4-H programs started around eight years old. They do animal husbandry, they do gardening. Uh, ours here locally, uh, they have events at the local shooting range, so they do shooting, they do archery. Uh, Corey mentioned that his son uh, isn't interested in sports, but he's just turning five, and I think that might be too early to tell. So for us, uh, I played basketball when I was younger, uh, but we're not really a sport family except for a swim team. So all of our children did swim team, and for us that was important because it's a great life skill. 
Uh, a lot of us feel comfortable with them around the water because they're strong swimmers. And there's also individual sports like cycling and hiking, archery, riflery. Um, there are lots of opportunities to meet other kids and develop relationships. So the good, the plus side of uh, events like scouting and 4-H in a sporting group is that when people pay to belong to the group, they tend to be more consistent. And that's really helpful in developing friendships and, you know, knowing that when your kid shows up, that there'll be his friends there that he's used to and he's looking forward to seeing. So, again, with the scout troops or even in forage programs, that you're going to find that some of them are more award-driven, where it's all about the awards, yeah. and others are more skill-driven, where really the focus is on learning the skills and the rewards are really a secondary aspect of the program. And so whatever type of program fits what you're looking for, you'll be able to feel that out by going to a couple of events. So lots of churches in your area. Uh, they, they, a lot of churches host homeschool groups. And don't worry about the religion. We found that we've gone to a number of different homeschool meetups that meet at different churches. Um, and churches are usually just a hosting place. It's usually a family a mom from that church that gets to use the facility for a homeschool meetup. Uh, so generally speaking, they're not going to be doing any of the proselytization. Uh, but you may, again, you may have to try several groups to find one that meets what you're looking for. So another really fun way to find other homeschoolers is to start going to the places that you enjoy going, but going during school hours. So when you're there, you start looking around. We're at the farmer's market. It meets at 2 o'clock. So you pretty much guarantee all the kids there are homeschoolers. They probably don't live very far from you, and you can start talking and connecting. The garden center um, in the afternoons after lunch, but before school's out, it's a good time to see kids out places, at least in our neighborhood. And um, then the you start asking those places, hey, do you guys have a homeschool class? And if enough people ask, then the local gardening center will offer a homeschool class, and you'll meet more people there. Uh, we have beekeepers meetings near us that um, they happen on Saturday, but it's a lot of homeschoolers involved in that also. Oh, also feed stores. When you go to the local feed yeah. store, especially if you're going during weekdays, you'll see kids there. Most of those kids, if they're there on a weekday, they're homeschoolers. Yeah, so just start just being super friendly and talking to them. So you like it's like your social skills are going to encourage the opportunity for your son to and gain more social skills and find for those friends. So Chris, a TSP member, is building a networking site for homeschoolers. So his goal is to have people match themselves with families by location, by activities, by age, by teaching styles, etc. He's just starting this up. He's just developing it. He's a TSP member, so, so stay tuned. Yeah, a lot of the homeschool, like finding other homeschoolers, they get your information and then they kind of put you in spots and they send back information. So, so what Chris is looking to do is having it be more instant, where you're in charge of looking and you get to see all the options it sounds really cool, so we're looking forward to see what he's going to do with that. Yeah, a lot more self-serve. Yes. So stay tuned. Yeah. More information is going to be coming on that. Yeah, and so another, I don't know if you guys, you're obviously our reader, our email guy is not on Facebook, but on Facebook this guy, Josh Reynolds, posted um, that he 
went to a beekeeping meeting and there was a little boy there with a Polly Faces t-shirt on from Joel Solitan's farm and they got to have this really cute conversation about that and it's just that's so start advertising wear the t-shirt you know buy the t-shirt wear the t-shirt when you're out and if people are kind of shy that can give them a prompt they can look at your shirt and go oh hey I recognize that I'm interested in that yeah so we belong to a large homeschool scout group so we had t-shirts that said San San Antonio area homeschool scouts and we wear those t-shirts to a lot of different activities and people would see the shirt and they'd say there's a homeschool scout troop here in the area and we'd say yeah there is and they'd ask questions about where it met and, and what day it met on uh, that happened quite often so um, so part of it uh, Corey is one to advertise and two is to be adventurous so part of it is is going on the adventures with your son and your wife to a lot of different events looking for homeschoolers but going to places where homeschoolers tend to go. So one of the things I want to, um, we want to say we're interested in helping people if you have questions about relationship um, with your family or anything, we'd love to help answer any questions people might have that maybe they're not comfortable going to talk to somebody and um, sit down. But um, we're designed for relationship, and I know a lot of the TSP listeners are probably the kind that I'm self-reliant and I'm going to go move out to the country. And my family's been doing that for a long time. Um, 1968, we left L.A. and moved to Fort Jones, California. We were a Foxfire family before there was Foxfire. I think the book came out like five years later. But um, it was hard. It was really hard work living on a farm. We had about 80 acres and cattle and um, just it was all snail mail back then and there was like 10 people in the county I don't remember it's like it was probably us the 10 of us and then the guy at the next farm was seven boys or something so it was it it was isolated and um, it became really discouraging and my parents you know moved back to LA to make more money and then when I was 11 we moved to an organically farmed a couple of acres in Oregon because 80 acres was too much so I guess two or three acres was great and it's um it's hard work and so gathering with friends who are doing that hard work that makes it easier because you have that conversation and you're sharing those experiences and your kids are understanding that um, they're not the only ones that get up and have to feed the rabbits before they do school and stuff so we would just encourage you guys to make sure that you're working on your relationships first and then all this other stuff. Yes, so what I'd like to end it with is this. So a lot of times we know people who have decided that they want a homestead, but the husband and wife's definition of homesteading are two different things. Yeah. One of them thinks about, well, we're going to move out to the country, and the other person thinks about we're going to have a small farm and we're going to do all this work and they don't have an agreement on that and when they move out to the country one of them is doing all the work and the other one is thinking I just wanted to move out to the country I don't want to be doing all this work and so you got to get your together together I've said that before so as a husband and wife you got to get in agreement you got to be as one anyway 
Corey, I hope this answers your question. Again, this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com for the Expert Council. Jack, thanks again for everything you do for our great community. Before we move on, I kind of want to add to this one just a little bit from a philosophical standpoint. If you look around in your life, you probably associate with a lot of people every day that you don't consider friends. You might go to work. If you work for a large company, you might know at 50 to 100 people on a first-name basis in that company, like who they are, where they sit, things like that. But do you have anything to do with them outside of the confines of work? And the answer to many of the, those people would be no. Uh, you might have some people that you know through work or from school or things like that that you consider friends. But if you if you look at the real friends in your life, many of them will have come to your life in in just a huge variety of different ways. Maybe you met them, you know, as as, as somebody you know that you you worked with, but maybe not for the same company. Like they like I had a really great friend that unfortunately passed away. That the way I met him was I hired him as a fishing guide, and we ended up just hitting it off when we were great friends. Um, but the point is that friendship is the purest expression of voluntary association that there is. So when we decide that we want to be somebody's friend, that we want to hang out with somebody, that we want to share parts of our lives with them, that we want to help them, that we want them involved, and we want them to meet our family and things like that, and we, we, we end up building a group of friends, and we want this new person to get along with our existing friends because they're part of the group now, that type of thing, um, it's pure voluntary association. Well, if you think about it, a huge component of, of, of public school, government school, is involuntary association. People that don't want to be around each other are forced to be around each other. That's not necessarily a good thing, especially if, the, if one of the, the, the two is the weaker one that's picked on and preyed upon by the others. As a homeschooler, you have an opportunity to expose your child to tremendous numbers of people, and let him choose the ones he wants or she wants to voluntarily associate with, rather than being forced into artificial, hierarchical situations where if you don't happen to be at the top, it's not good, and the closer you are to the bottom with shit rolling downhill, the more shit falls on your kid's head. I, I think we think ass backwards, like, how will they ever make friends? I don't know, take them to a park. Do you have a neighborhood? Are there kids that play in the neighborhood? You know, the way that we made sure my son made friends when we moved to the neighborhood that we lived in in Pennsylvania is we asked around, is there any other kids about his age? And we found out there was one and with a younger brother and a slightly older brother. Well, that's great. So, like we said, like go introduce yourself to him. I don't want to. But I didn't ask you if, you if it pleased you, would you please go do so? I said go over there and introduce yourself to him. And he didn't want to go. And we were like we were having dinner. And he was like, he was chewing his food. He was like, I, I'm not going till I'm finished with my last bite. He chewed this thing like bubble gum for like five minutes trying to avoid it. I'm like, I don't care anymore. Get up. Go introduce yourself to this kid. His name's Zach. He came back like five minutes later. Like, he, I don't think his feet touched the ground. And grabbed a basketball and went out. And they went out to play basketball. I had promised him when we moved, since I was pulling him out of his group of friends, that I would put basket, a basketball court up basically for him because I had to pave the driveway. So I had done that. And, and they, they became thick as thieves for three years until we moved from there. Like you, you, you make friends because you have something in common. Not because you're forced in a room with people. What you actually end up with in school is groups of friends who then single out other kids and pick on them. 
It's a huge problem. Bullying is a bigger problem today than it was when I was in school. I can tell you that. The stuff that goes on today never happened when I was in school, and there was still quite a bit of bullying and picking on and social order and stuff like that. And it's completely artificial. There's no place other than school where the behavior that goes on there is acceptable. You, you can't tell me there's any place else where if you're sitting at your desk minding your own business and someone's calling your names or throwing shit at you or telling you we're going to beat you up later, that there's any place else where people would say, just work it out, just be nice to each other. Okay, Johnny and Billy, you shake hands and make nice. There's no place else this is acceptable. It doesn't happen anywhere else. So this whole concept that socially children are better off in government schools is bullshit programming. It's absolute bullshit programming. And we just need to get out of it. We need to stop thinking that way. It's like, if, if kids can't make friends without school, then how do they make friends during summer vacation? I mean, some of the best friends I ever had, we spent all, all our time hanging out during summer vacation. We didn't go to school together. Just saying. People make friends because they want to, not because they're forced to. Just a different way to look at it. Okay, i got a question now for Nick Ferguson on Comfrey. Is it really a dynamic accumulator, or is that all po poopycock? What do you call it? Uh, hokum. <laughs> Nick, take it away. Hey, guys. Nick Ferguson from HomegrownLiberty.com calling in to answer a question on Comfrey. And this question is, is Comfrey really a dynamic accumulator, or is this just a myth? Well, I think that's a great question. And uh, to preface my answer, I'm going to say that I'm a big believer in knowing and understanding the proper definition of a word. <clears throat> and to do that, we have to look at the actual definition and not just make one up or just assume we know based on the context. Popular usage does not necessarily actually define a word. Lots of people can be wrong about stuff. Just ask people... Well, I was going to say uh, hundreds of years ago, but people still today actually think the world is flat. So popular opinion does not make a correct answer. So uh, with that, words constantly shift in meaning and people will pervert the meaning of a word to suit a personal agenda or political persuasion. Now, I read the article that uh, was linked to this, and I agree with a lot of what the author said. I do, however, take exception to the error in the author's definition of the word dynamic and also of the word accumulator. So let's actually look at the definition of those two words. Dynamic, the noun, a force that stimulates change or progress within a system or process. An accumulator, noun, a person or thing that accumulates something. So literally defined, a dynamic accumulator is, in this case, in this context, a plant that accumulates something that stimulates change or progress within, in this context, an ecosystem. Does that mean it's magical? Nope. It doesn't mean it's super special or magical. It's not a lightsaber. Every plant will dynamically accumulate materials in an ecosystem. That's what they do. They grow. They transform energy from the sun into material that when decomposed will build soil. Some plants accumulate more proteins than others. 
And what happens when protein breaks down? Well, it turns into a high nitrogen decomposed material. Other elements will be concentrated in differing amounts depending on the species of plant and the materials available to the plant. So if we need more calcium concentrated in a highly bioavailable form, then we should utilize plants that use a lot of calcium to grow. Because when they die and decompose, the minerals that they use, that they took up, are made readily available to plants and soil-borne biota. So here's my take on comfrey and other special plants, in air quotes. I use comfrey because it's been proven to be a cell proliferant. It's relatively high protein. It has an edible leaf for nearly every kind of animal I want to keep. It helps to heal wounds for myself and my animals. It's a great fodder crop. And when the leaf decomposes, it makes a great fertility addition to my soils. Are there better plants out there? Probably. But it works. It ain't broke. So I don't aim to fix what ain't broke. Whenever I find another good plant that does a great job feeding my animals and building soil, I use it. Like white mulberry, for instance. I like comfrey because it's aggressive. It's nearly bulletproof. It does a great job at outcompeting other less useful native plants. I said less useful, not bad. And it works for what I need it to do. So I don't particularly care if it's a magical plant that's super great at pulling up every mineral from the core of the earth. What I care about is I can make some great manure from it and some healthy meat by feeding it to my animals. I care that it chokes out weeds, that all my animals love to eat it, and that it makes a wonderful healing salve for all the inevitable cuts, scrapes, and injuries that I get from working on my homestead. So I think the important thing is to make sure that you do things in moderation. Planting comfrey all over the place and making a comfrey monocrop is foolish. Adding it to every single design element is also foolish. You don't need to do that. I don't put comfrey under my rabbit hutches because then I'll have urine all over the leaves and I sure don't want to feed that to anything and I don't want to use it for a poultice. I don't want to use it for anything but but growing. I'm not going to put it under my rabbit hutches. So that's just one example of a bad choice in where to put it. Now, it might actually make sense if uh, if you can find a good reason to put it there, but there's lots of places and situations where you don't want to use comfrey. I don't want comfrey in my annual garden beds because, well, it's a fantastically aggressive grower that makes big leaves that will choke out weeds and grasses. Now, does that necessarily mean that it's going to take over your whole garden and and conquer the whole property that you own? No. I've heard people say that you can't put it in a garden because it'll take over the whole thing. Well, that's just not true. Lots of people have it grown in their annual gardens, and it does just fine. I don't have it there because, well, I have I don't have enough on my property, and I have way better places to put it than in my garden. Um, and just for those reasons that I listed, it makes a great companion to a tree because it'll choke out the weeds and grasses under the tree. So... As long as you remember to do things in moderation and don't buy into a, f- a fad to an extreme, I think you'll be all right. So is comfrey a dynamic accumulator? Yes, but technically so are all plants. To hear more from me, check out my podcast on iTunes or download directly from my blog. I have over 50 blog posts with most of the episodes transcribed. So if you don't want to listen to my voice, you can at least read what I have to say. And you can find that at homegrownliberty.com. Thanks, guys. I hope you have a wonderful day. Do good things.
Inconceivable! Inconceivable! You keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. I, I played that little uh, pop culture quote, which is from a movie I've never seen called The Princess Bride, because I know during the entire first part of that segment, when Nick was talking about the definitions of words, that that was going through his head over and over, because it is one of his favorite quotes of all time. So I played that just for Nick, and for you guys in the audience to get a giggle, too, as well. Yeah, I agree. I think that there's there's been people that... They come out and they write an article because they want to be known for something, and they so they'll take a contrarian view just to take one. And uh, I do think maybe permies and uh, organic agriculturists as a whole might have made a little bit uh, uh, bigger of a deal out of what Comfrey does as a dynamic accumulator than it really is. But um, having looked at this a great deal and, and looking at the research done by Dave Jackie and Eric Tosemeyer in uh, their their books that they did together um, and looking at the 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 minerals that are in comfrey uh, you know when it when it does its thing and you you harvest the leaves uh, it, it does accumulate some minerals that many other plants do not like manganese uh, and silicon uh, so that's what That's what people that are actually not talking out of their ass mean when they say it's a dynamic accumulator. What they mean is not only does it do what all plants do, but there are certain other minerals that it's good at accumulating that are generally not so bioavailable in the ecosystem to other plants. That's all. But that's a lot. That's a big deal. And like Nick said, I grow comfrey the same way. It does so many things for me beyond dynamic accumulation that it's one of the most useful plants on my homestead. Next up, I have a question for Stephen Harris on LED lights, headlights, specifically for search and rescue. Hi, this is Steve Harris calling in to answer your question. I have a question from a guy who's got two first names as a first and last name. So I don't know what to call you, so I'll just pick one and say Farley. Farley emailed me and Jack and said, I'm looking for recommendations for a headlamp. I need an LED headlamp for my volunteer search and rescue team gear. Well, thank you, one, for being a volunteer. I prefer something that won't break the bank, ideally has adjustable output and red light. Farley, you don't need a red light, okay? But the other features are nice. It doesn't have the top strap, which you can cut off Farley. Farley. A lot of them have the top strap. I know a lot of people that cut the top strap off. And preferably runs on AA batteries. I'll have a few things to say about that. I found tons that fit what I want but are AAA powered. I'm willing to use AAAs if necessary, but since my radio and flashlight use AA's, I want to keep everything common. Well, Farley, my favorite headlamp that uses double A's is the Fenix, F-E-N-I-X, sometimes pronounced Phoenix, HL23, Hotel Lima 23. It's about $35 on Amazon. It runs off of one double A battery, has variable variable brightness, and it does not have a red feature. Um, 
this I use, I put in my stuff when I travel, if you've seen my videos. Uh, I got a special video out. If you get any of my current videos, you get the one that has me showing you my illumination and power and communications bag that I take with me when I travel by car. Definitely a good 56-minute video that you get with any of my videos that you buy. So anyways, um, it runs on one AA battery. And the main reason I take it with me when I travel is because you can always find AA's everywhere. I got rechargeable uh, alkaline and lithium AA's with me when I travel. But if I'm ever going to you know, buy or scrounge for batteries, I'll probably find AA's. And then I can use them in the headlamp. That's why I have the head, AA headlamp when I travel. Now, search and rescue is pretty damn serious stuff and you need a damn serious headlamp for it now there's no one more serious in the world when it comes to headlamps and flashlights than spelunkers these are the people who go into caves and we you know, go for miles in the caves there is definitely no natural forms of light their favorite that they commonly use is called a zebra, Z-E-B-R-A, like the, like the animal. You can find quite a few of these on Amazon. Now they have one that comes with a, as a, with one double A headlamp. It's a right angled flash, um, headlamp. So it looks like a flashlight with, uh, the light emitting part coming out at 90, 90 degrees. And it goes onto your helmet or into a holder, and that is your headlamp. So they got one that takes double A, takes a double A. It's about seventy bucks. They have one that takes an eighteen six fifty, and they have one that takes CR one two threes. Don't ever think of using CR one two threes in anything that you do. Double A's and eighteen six fifties beat the crap out of them. So congratulations, you are Farley. You're now with the big boys. Now you are now in search and rescue. That means you need to have a big boys flashlight and headlamp, and you need to use a big boy battery. That is going to be a lithium-ion 18650 battery. Now, according to me, my policy on light, there is three types of light out there that you need. There is emergency light, which is light that you use for searching for a lost child. That's as bright as possible so you can light the world up and find that lost child. There's room level light, light that lights up a room so you don't trip over anything and you can see where you're going and it can be dim or brighter, but it's It lights the room up, not an area that you're pointing at. Then there is necessary light, which is a necessary amount of light to do a job. Uh, This would be like for, say, the amount of lighting you need to read a book would only be a couple lumens. You don't need to have a 300-lumen flashlight to read a book. You need to have one that can do... One, two, three, four, five lumens, and you'll be fine. Now, search and rescue is the real deal. This is emergency light. And for this, you're going to want nothing but an 18650-based battery. I am a reserve sheriff deputy in my local county. If you want to find something personally personally rewarding, see if your local county has a sheriff reserve. Not all do, quite a few Not all do, many do. You will never, ever learn more about your personal rights than after you take that 
course. Mine was about 230 hours of class over five months. Pretty easy, just Thursday nights and a few weekends. You do not get paid. You're like a volunteer firefighter, no pay. You do it for the service, for the good of the community as a way to give back. Well, I carry a gun, badge, bulletproof vest, baton, pepper spray, qualified with tasers, and my flashlights are on my duty belt. It is entirely possible that my life or my fellow deputy's life or the life of the people I am protecting might depend upon whether my flashlight works or not. So what I'm telling you here about what to get and to use is what I use and what I tell my brother deputies to use on duty, knowing that if SHTF, our life could depend upon the tools on our belt. Oh, and just for fun, my boots, duty belt, gun, mags, vest, and uniform weigh 26 pounds. We could walk around in that in the summertime. Now, while Zebra has excellent 18650 headlamps, I use the Nightcore HC30, N-I-T-E-C-O-R-E, Hotel Charlie 30. This is a true 1000 lumens flashlight, but I commonly use it only on the second of five levels of brightness. I use this in combination with my Nightcore SRT5, Sierra Romeo Tango 5 flashlight. It is awesome. Also an 18650 flashlight. It does any brightness from a 0.1 lumens all the way up to a true 750 lumens. It's got a little ring that you turn linearly and it brightens and it dims the light. The SRT5 is also an 18650 flashlight, so it's using the same food I feed by headlamp. I keep my headlamp in my duty pocket. I keep my flashlight on my belt. The flashlight is the one I use first. If I have to go, you know, if I need both hands for what I'm doing, like helping a paramedic with someone who's injured, which has happened, then I put my headlamp on so I have both my hands free. The Zebra comes in 1AA, 1-18650, and 2CR123s. Do not get the one with the damn CR123s. For 18650 battery, I use the Intsun batteries. I-N-T-S-U-N. Indio November Tango. Sierra uh, Union November. Safely... In the, in these, well, the point is, there is no safety in these in-sun batteries. They're a cheaper battery. And it's a long story, you gotta see it in the bug out bag video about the safeties in 18650 batteries. The reason I can use these cheaper and reliable 18650s is that the charger I use is very intelligent and the flashlights are very intelligent. The flashlights won't over-discharge and the charger won't overcharge so you don't have a safety issue. The night core, like I said, the night core won't over-discharge, so you're fine there. The batteries are about $16 for four of them. Uh, to hold your spare batteries and to keep them safe, and you need to get the power packs. P-O-W-E-R-P-A-X, 18650 battery holders. Less than $10, and it holds 18650s in perfect safety. For charging use, the Nightcore D4 is what I use, N-I-T-E-C-O-R-E, 
David 4. Get the one on Amazon that comes with the 12-volt cable and the 120 or 240-volt wall cord. It's about 32 bucks. The night cord will charge and it will recharge any nickel metal hydride or any lithium ion battery. If you want to go smaller and cheaper than the $32 D4, then you want to charge, still charge 18650s. I highly recommend the XTAR VC2 Plus. That's XTAR, X-Ray, Tango, Alpha, Romeo, Victor, Charlie, the number two plus. It charges two 18650s at a time and it runs off a USB port for power. So it can also work as a USB battery and will use an 18650 battery to recharge your cell phone. So it's two is one, one is none. Want to see this in action in incredible detail? Go to my Stephen Harris videos and get the cell phone video at cellphone1234.com. It's one of the best videos I have ever made and you'll never ever have a dead cell phone your lifeline ever again no matter where you are in the world stay away from the overpriced stream lights and o lights these work much better the ones i've told you about here i can't emphasize enough how important your cell phone is for your lifeline plus how important SHTF reliable light is when something happens. I have an incredibly detailed tutorial on batteries, all types, at bugout1234.com and 14 ways to keep your cell phone charged all the time anywhere in the world at cellphone1234.com. Contact me with any questions on this or any other subject. My email box is open to you and everyone all the time. It will be in the upper right of Stephen1234.com. Thank you so much. Talk to you later. Bye. Good stuff for St- from Stephen Harris there. Uh, I have a question now for Michael Jordan on uh, pollen patties, making them and how long they last, and a little bit on swarm trapping as well. This is Michael Jordan, the bee whisperer of a bee-friendly company in Cheyenne, Wyoming. Taking your questions on bees, apiary management, and the making of meads. My question is, Michael, I know it's not time to start feeding bees yet. However, I have pollen patties left over from last year that have been stored in an airtight container and wrapped in cellophane. I'm wondering if it goes bad. At what point should I throw it out and replace it with new pollen for spring feeding of the hives? How do I tell when it's no longer good for the bees? Thank you, Jeff in Michigan. Jeff, you have pollen patties from last year, and you want to use them. Go for it. Make sure you check that there's no mold on them, and they're not wet, or when you thaw them out that the patties are not like runny goo. The shelf life of a patty is six months, and that's if they're dry. If you put them in a cool place and store them, for a very long time after that, they start losing protein levels. Now you can store them in a freezer for a long period, but when you defrost, the patties are going to be very soft. As long as they're not freezer burned or all fuzzy looking, I would go ahead and use them. The patties do not have to have any medication in them, and they don't have anything other than probably just sugars, carbs, proteins, and pollen. Now, the best time to put out patties I feel is mid-March. And that really gets the queen thinking that there's pollen going on and it's going on strong. 
and she needs to be laying more bees. We tend to think that our colonies only need sugar, but they also need pollen. But aside from the fact that only larvae require it, pollen availability differs from nectar availability. Pollen is available earlier in the spring and later in the fall. We've all seen bees collecting pollen with snow on the ground or in between winter storms. Hell, my bees are still bringing in pollen now and then in mid-November due to warm spells. And sometimes I can even see them in February just coming out to do their little runs of defecation and looking for water. Stimulation of the brood productivity too early may not be wise. So don't just always keep adding pollen patties. Remember, you don't want your colony population to peak before the nectar flow. If you build up your colony too soon, you will have a kajillion bees with nothing to eat. And this isn't good. I tend to start in March with pollen patties and use a little sugar feed to go with it. In April, I give the last round of pollen patties and I go with a strong syrup feed before going into the honey flow. And that helps them out for the beginning of the year. I'm making sure that I have large populations mid to the end of May. I have an open pollen feeder out there so the bees can keep getting pollen. But when they're hitting flowers so much, I don't see too much of them in the feeders. Now make sure you have a lot of water for March till November. Not only do your bees need feed, pollen, sugar, <laughs> when there's not enough, any around, but you also want to make sure they have a good sense of water. Now, I think your pollen patties will be just fine. I think that if you're looking to preserve them, I think you did just fine. So, Jeff, I think that you're going to do well, and just make sure you do not keep your pollen patties for more than two years. They will go bad because they will lose all their protein lust that they need for the bees. That's one reason why you're using the pollen patties, is that you're looking for a way to build protein for bee nectar flow. That when you're looking for this nectar flow and the pollen to make bee bread, the queen lays more larvae, feeding the larvae for larger population growth. Now, if you choose to make your own, I'm going to go ahead and include a link in this uh this segment and then that way you can look it up and see how to make some pollen patties you know you can order them from Man Lake, Dannant, Western Bee Supply, Brushy Mountain Bee Farm I mean there's lots of places but you can make your own and there's a simple recipe for it that I'll include in a link that you can watch a YouTube video and kind of see how to make them your own using different types of like grains to go with some bee healthy now I just talked about sugar additives be healthy and stuff like that. Remember, you're the beekeeper, and you want to do what's best for your bees. There are some people that like to go more natural routes, using like a sugar solution that is made by Gunther Hawk at Spikenard Farms. It's a BT. Or you can use some more natural pollen patties by adding direct pollen instead of using substitutes. So you can do more natural measures. But remember, if you're going to keep bees, it's like an agricultural business. You're not going to get milk from a cow if you don't feed it. You're not going to get good strung wool from a sheep if you don't feed it. You're not going to get a lot of eggs from chickens if you don't feed them. And you're not going to get huge populations in honey flow if you don't feed the bees. Now, we don't feed the bees during the honey flow season, but we have to build up their population for times of darth and times when they're ready to grow.
So that's something to think of. So good luck, Jeff, and I think that you'll do just fine. For those that are looking to make your own, I did include this link, and you'll get to see it. I do want to say hey to David, that last year he asked about extracting a swarm outside of a cinder block wall. Well, he shot us an update. He says it all worked. That with help from a mentor, they have a strong hive now coming out of into the summer, and there they got it out of the wall. Now he asks about swarm traps, so he's ready to, you know, catch them when they break out and when they're ready to move on their own. So, David, I've also enclosed a link to my YouTube site, the best swarm trap. Uh, put out two or three around these 15th away, 15 feet away from your hive, and if they do swarm, I'll bet you get them. So swarm trapping, there's many different videos out, but I have included, I think, one of the best swarm trap uh, making devices that is portable, easy to set up. You don't have to climb trees. You don't have to set them up in high locations. That It, it does it all by yourself. And uh, also uh, on that YouTube site, look up 52 meads in a year and see what we've been up to this year of 2017 from January through February. We hit everything from how to start out on making meads to February, which was all oranges. We're going to be hitting March now and using apples. So, you know, I've had a lot of great uh, replies on it. And the really cool one that I think people are really liking is our bloody Valentine mead that we've put out. So thanks a lot for your questions. Uh, you got your pollen patties. you got your swarm trap. And you're going to be able to make some meads here coming this new year. As always, I'm Michael Jordan telling you to buy your honey from a beekeeper you respect. Buy it from a cottage industry because we all have to start someplace. And always, man, hey, help your fellow man if one day you're going to need help too. And that one act of kindness to one person may not change the world, but it may change the world for that one person. Great stuff from Michael Jordan. I do have his links in the show notes. Uh, next, I have a question for Doc Bones on a cough that only occurs when the guy's spending time in his RV. Uh, let's hear from Dr. Bones on that. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, now with over 900 articles, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. I'm also the co-author, along with my lovely wife, Nurse Amy, of the 700-page, wow, third edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, The Essential Guide for When Medical Help is Not on the Way. This week's question for the expert counsel comes from Michael, who writes, When I return from a weekend in my caravan this winter, I have a bug-out two acres in humid western Ireland, which I visit most weekends. I find that I spend a few days coughing afterwards, a dry hacking cough with sometimes clear phlegm, but no signs of infection. In other words, no yellow phlegm. I have an electric blanket. I'm pretty sure the Caravan is the source of the problem because I don't get the cough if I stay at a nearby hostel. I'm not a smoker. Any idea why the caravan may be causing the cough? Michael, to get a better idea of your issue, I sent you an email and appreciate your response. The caravan you describe is a recreational vehicle, and these are sometimes difficult to keep pristine. As such, they may accumulate mold or microbes, especially in humid weather. 
This may cause infectious diseases in some cases, but also allergic reactions in others. Your issue might be either. If it is an infectious problem, I would suspect a fungus more than a bacteria or virus, which could reside in your air vents or on a pillow you mentioned seems somewhat damp. As you seem to be worse every time after spending time in the vehicle, improve and then relapse after using the vehicle again, an allergy or other response to mold could easily be the problem. Although your phlegm may be clear, it doesn't completely rule out infection and certainly not a sensitivity to an allergy-causing substance. As exposure to some molds may be quite dangerous, it's important for you to be evaluated by a physician have some studies done on the phlegm. You may not be required to take antibiotics, but it might be appropriate to avoid exposure to the recreational vehicle, which both of us suspect is a problem. Maybe it's time to trade it in for a newer model. This is Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health in good times or bad. Hey, do us a big favor. Follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show, Facebook at Doom and Bloom, and YouTube on DR Bones, that's Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy's channel. And don't forget, the Member Support Brigade gets a coupon code for a discount off anything in Nurse Amy's entire line of medical kits and supplies. Check them out at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. All right, next I have a question for uh, Gary Collins involving Tom Brady's diet and uh, an alkaline-based diet. Gary, take it away. Hey everyone, this is Gary Collins of PrimalPowerMethod.com where we discuss all things primal lifestyle, paleo diet, uh, simplified living, and living off the grid, amongst some other things. Uh, make sure to go get my book, Going Off the Grid. It's doing really well, and if you've read it, make sure to give me a review on Amazon. Uh, Tom Brady, gosh, why would we need to talk about the guy with the most perfect life in the world? Well, I guess uh, uh, the, the person asked the question was wondering about his diet that he had changed to a 20 or 80% alkaline to 20% acidic diet, which is considered, it has few names. I think it's the alkaline ash diet and the alkaline acidic diet, if I remember right. It's been around a while. It's basically being a vegetarian, but don't want to call yourself a vegetarian. Yeah, I think there's different ratios and maybe that's why or someone just wanted to tweak it and make their own name for it. Who knows? But the theory behind it is, and then he counteract, he related that to me talking about uh, a certain diet aspect and pH levels in your body and how it could affect it. And there's, it's goofy science going on here with the alkaline ash diet. I think that's what he's trying to tie it into. They believe that by eating a higher alkaline diet, and and I'll, I got to get in pH real quick. The human body in blood primarily is between 7.35 to 7.45. Anything outside of that realm is considered even alkaline or metabolic acidosis or acid acidosis, I believe. So it gets complicated. There's obviously different pH levels all throughout the body. But the people who eat this diet think they can affect um, Primarily their blood pH, from what I understand. I don't know if they're talking about uh, lower GI uh, and, and gut pH, which would be bad because an alkaline diet can actually drop the acidic level in your stomach acid because it's not being used as much because you need it to digest proteins, break down protein. So who knows? Uh, the jury's still out on a lot of this stuff. None of it's really been proven. But I think 
and they think that they can or counteract chronic inflammation because obviously uh, the fruits and vegetables in an alkaline diet, because it's primary fruits and vegetables that are alkaline, you eat primarily those, and then meat, uh, dairy, and grains are considered the acidic side. So, yes, you no, know, not really, but it's a nice theory, and I'm sure the person who came up with this had some interesting uh, researcher who knows what they used. So that's kind of the, the gist of it. And they believe they can affect and make their blood pH more stable. Well, do we tend to hint towards the more acidic side in, in American culture? Yeah. Is it, uh, into the acid, acidosis range? Usually not. And I'm guessing that the questioner was putting it to with uh, when I talked about the ketogenic diet. And I wasn't sure if it was here or somewhere else. I answer a ton of questions on this stuff. And what I was trying to relay, and it's a little more complicated without getting into the weeds, that if, you, if you're not ready for a ketogenic diet or you're just way over-consuming fats for a long period of time, one of one of the causes of metabolic acidosis is when your blood drops below 7.35 pH level is too much fat and not enough carbohydrates in the diet. So that, that I think that's what he was relating to. And there's many factors that can cause that. You can have too many ketones in the body. You could have basically uh, hereditary uh, hypoglycemia, low blood sugar, which can cause that as well. There's many, many instances of that or just, uh, you know, you, you're, you're diabetic, you're obese. So taking and going from zero to 60 or not having the ability to process ketones properly, there are people who do have that problem. That's where you can go into an acidosis state. So I think that's what he was getting at. And does it happen very often? No. But have I known it to happen? Yes. Uh, it's uh, affecting your blood pH drastically is very difficult to do. But you can see there's a very small window of where it can sway. But the theory is it'll be more stable. And like I said, you'll fight inflammation and all that kind of good stuff with a, the alkaline acidic diet being primarily alkaline. Hope that answers your question. Guys, go make sure to go out and uh, listen to my new podcast, Old Dudes, New Tricks. It's doing really well. And if any of you think you got something to share, make sure to get a hold of us and fill out the contact form. Thanks. Um, Gary is a lot kinder than I am with this whole freaking pile of bullshit, because that's what it is. This whole acid-alkaline crap is a big pile of hokum bullshit. And when anybody starts talking about it, I just assume that whatever comes out of your mouth next is not worth hearing because it's bullshit. It's been proven to be bullshit. Uh, you can go into a state, like Gary said, of acidosis, but only a little bit before you're freaking dead. If you move your blood pH significantly in either direction, you die, like all the way dead in the ground, undertaker sucking your guts out and your blood out and burying you in a hole. You're dead. This is stupid. It's nonsense. It's bullshit. It's fake information. It's false. And what you have is a quarterback trying to springboard a diet book for his supermodel wife, and neither one of them know the square root of F all about nutrition when it comes to something like this, because you can't, because it's bullshit.
There you go. That's my short answer to that question. I think Gary probably agrees, but was being a little more diplomatic about it than I am. But it's crap. It's nonsense. It's not true. It's proven false over and over again. You can't do it. You can't change your blood freaking pH by what you freaking eat. It's bullshit. All right. Let me calm down now. Let me calm down now because i got to answer your question uh, back and clean up as I always do here on these Friday shows. Uh, I thought this one was interesting, and I thought it would make a, a, a good one, um, given all that's gone on lately. Uh, me getting involved a little bit with Patreon, pushing the YouTube a little bit more. Charles, the humble mechanic, joining us, who's built his business, yes, through his own site and all, but really YouTube being the foundation content creation component of his business. And I got this question and thought this is a good one for today. And even though it, it talks about YouTube, it's really not a YouTube question. I know the person asking it really thinks it is, but we'll expand it as we read it. So it, here it comes from Arturo. And by the way, this is how, this is exactly how to do a question if you want to get it through my screening. Question. Do you think a YouTube channel as a hobby could be turned into a legitimate business even if the revenue from it never becomes profitable? That's the whole question. Details. I know when done correctly, a hobby can generate income, which can help pay for something you already enjoy doing and can offer advantages even if it never turns a profit. So I wonder if that can or should be applied to YouTube. There seems to be primarily three types of content creators on YouTube. Hobbyists who just do it for fun and don't care if they ever make a dime. Those who try to earn a living from it but are struggling and or failing. And three, those successfully earning enough to make it a full-time job business. I would like to hear your thoughts on this. Well, actually, there's a fourth kind of person doing it on YouTube that you're missing there, Arturo, and that is the person that is making a profit, but it's not enough to have a full-time income. That would be me. 300, 400 bucks a month. I mean, it's a little piece of my business. So let's talk about this concept of a legitimate business. Is something you do in perpetuity without ever making a profit a legitimate business? No. It's not. It's not in, in the real world, and under the microscopic lens of the IRS, it's absolutely not a legitimate business, which I suspect in some way is getting to the heart of what you're talking about here. So while this actually pertains beautifully to YouTube, and we'll use it in the illustration, I want you to understand this is true of any business. Um, a lot of people start up little farms on their property and they start selling eggs and things like that. And if you do it long enough and you're putting enough into it and there's enough revenue that you have to report, you'll file something called a Schedule F, which is a tax form for, for agricultural activities. If you file that Schedule F for a couple of years losing money, the IRS will let you take a deduction for it. However, in the third year, if you haven't made a profit yet, they may very well label you a quote-unquote hobby farm, which means you'll have to report your income and you'll have to report deductions against the income, but if you lose further money, it will not be deductible. You just won't pay tax on it because there won't be any gains. So if you lost $1,000 your first year in your farm business, you file your Schedule F with your Schedule C, your 1040, all that stuff, the IRS is fine. You lost 1000 bucks in business. That's, that's a legitimate loss if you ran it with the intent of making a profit. And the second year, well, okay, you know, you did it again, but you're still intending to make a profit. Your third year, no, 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 no. Sometimes they'll let it squeak by, but they might come back and hit you retroactively. For a business to be considered legitimate by the IRS, generally they want to see a profit three out of the last five years. So that's something to think about if you're thinking about this from a tax standpoint. However, there are other ways to do things. 
If you have a business that's a legitimate business that makes profits, you can do things within it where an individual segment of the business does not make a profit, but it's all filed as that business's revenue. So, for instance, if you had a content generation business that included blogging and membership sites and things like that, and the YouTube segment of it actually was a loss for you. In other words, you, you would do reviews on YouTube to help build the rest of your site, and you also monetize your YouTube videos. And that, what I mean by that is you put your AdSense on it or whatever, and you buy a, a $100 item, And the advertising revenue from that video makes you $5. Technically, you lost $95. As long as that is in with the totality of your entire business, it's a legitimate loss. But it's only really an expense against the gain of the entire business, if that makes sense. And you'll hear people get upset with me over this and say, you can lose money for years in a business and the IRS will let you and they may or they may not. By the letter of the code, three of the last five years is, is the litmus test. That doesn't mean they'll apply it. It means that they can apply it, and it depends also on the total volume of revenue, and there's a lot of other things, and you should always consult with your CPA on this. However, no business is a legitimate business, taxes aside, if it doesn't make a profit. So again, what I'd like to point out is the fourth category of the person on YouTube. They're doing it as a hobby, but yet their videos are successful enough to make them some money. And that might be four or five hundred dollars a month. And if they don't have a lot of overhead and costs and expenses, that's forty eight hundred dollars. Let's say that they have a thousand dollars a year in expenses, they make about three thousand dollars. It's a legitimate business. Now, can you come up with other expenses to apply against that income? And the answer is almost always you can. I want you to think about this with the tax code. The tax code, if we, if we stack it, is like from the floor to the ceiling high. It's like 9,000 pages or something like that. About 25 of those pages tell you how much you have to pay. And the whole rest of it tells you how to get out of it. That's what the tax code is. That's why a good CPA is worth his or her weight in gold. Okay, But again, you can't lose money every year over and over again and continue to claim a business um, as, a, you know, as, a, as a loss and get away with it in perpetuity. Now, there are, there's a way that you can do that, but not as an individual. If you have a business that's losing money and you're able to keep it afloat through loans, through debt, through... Uh, investment investors that are willing to keep put, putting money into it, whether angel or you know venture capital or whatever, and that business is not making a profit. If you can sustain that business for 10 or 20 years, they, 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 it will pay no corporate taxes. But if you're doing that and it's your full-time endeavor, you have to be paying yourself a salary out of it, and you're going to pay tax on the salary. You can't turn around and use the deduction from the corporation off of your income. Right? You can do it once or twice, but you can't do it in perpetuity. That's just how it works. So what you're really asking is, I, I think what you're asking here is, can a person... I, I really have a hard time understanding what you're asking, honestly. When, when, I, when I really think about the totality of this, because you're using the word profitable... That, that's what makes a business legitimate, is that it has a profit. That at the end of the month, the end of the quarter, the end of the year, that there's some kind of return on the money put into it. Otherwise, it is, 
It is just a hobby. It is just an expense. But I, I think that we can set this other goal, I guess is where I'm going with it. We can set this goal of not all businesses need to be something that we take into a full-time income level that allow us to walk away from our job if that's not what we want them to be. They can be more of a side hustle. Uh, they can put extra money into the family kitty every year. Let's let's look at it this way. So imagine that we can get a, a, a business. I don't care if it's on YouTube. I don't care if it's blogging. I don't care if it's taking people fishing on Saturdays. I, I don't care what it is. We can get a business to the point where it makes us $500 a month. $500 a month. And let's just say by the time we're taxed on it, we're left with $500. We're actually netting a, a true $500 gain into the family budget. And how much do you need to do that? It depends because every family has different tax consequences based on their income and, and things like that. So let's examine a person that's 20 years from retirement uh, that says, I'm, I'm going to make something happen in my life and I'm going to build a business that puts $500 a month into the family kitty, so to speak. And since we're you know a couple decades away from retirement, it would make a good idea that we just take that money that we've been able to exist on without having it, and we're just going to throw it in a retirement account, uh, and we're going to expect a return of 7%, which is fairly conservative. Most financial liars use a much higher number. Of course, I do call them liars. If you put $500 a month away at a 7% return for 20 years, it's $260,000. Is that legitimate? Even if it's never, it never becomes walk away from, from the job money, right? Is that legitimate? I'd, I'd say that's pretty legitimate. Um, if we do that for 30 years, it's $610,000. It's like, you know, 60% of a million dollars. They, they could make it, you know, assuming that you're saving other money, that could really make a very comfortable retirement now, couldn't it? And this is why I say that everybody should be working on building something as a side hustle. And then you have to determine what you want to do with that side hustle, with that extra money. Do you take that extra money and do you put it back into the business to keep growing it? If you believe in the long-term viability and growth and total return on the business, yes. If it really is just a side hustle, if it's not really going to grow, but it's sustainable, then we need to sequester that money, at least you know for a year at a time. At the end of the year, we can, we can, we can just open up a separate savings account, put that money in there, look at it shine it up every once in a while, you know, but let's not just throw that into the budget because if we do what happens next, this is where people that actually should be getting ahead get behind. Very much so. What happens is all of a sudden we're making $500 more a month. Well, when we extrapolate that out across a year, that's a $6,000 increase in salary. Now, what happens if something goes wrong or we decide we can't do it anymore or some sort of revenue platform change happens, has been known to happen or whatever, and that money's now gone? It's just like losing, you know, getting a $6,000 pay cut at work. If we've ratcheted the family budget up to, ma to match that, we have a problem. If we've been putting it away, we still have a nice nest egg and we can figure out what our next side hustle is. So this, to me, is how we have to approach these side businesses, hobby businesses, whatever you want to call them. There's only a certain number of people who are, honest to God, going to put the shoulder to the grindstone, knuckle down and do the hard work necessary to take one of these types of you know, content creation businesses or any business and turn it into a real full-time income. But there's a whole lot of people that can do things that are quick and simple and put money in their pocket. 
One of my good friends named Chris who lives up in Ohio. Many of you know which Chris I'm talking about. You know, he does bees. And he doesn't do bees the way Michael Jordan does bees. He doesn't have hives all over the place. He doesn't do a lot of honey. He has a whole bunch of hives, and he makes more bees. And every year he splits his hives, and he makes, let's say, 50 nuke colonies, the starter colony for, for new hives, say 50. Those sell for about 200 bucks. So that's $10,000. And the way he sells his nukes is he doesn't ship them. He doesn't go out of his way to do anything. He puts out some local advertising and says, hey, if you want a hive or two or five or whatever, they're first come, first serve on a list. They're being sold this Saturday. Come pick them up. And in one day, somebody shows up, a bunch of people show up, you know, whatever, to, to get rid of them all, and they all sell out every year. And they all go away, and he's done for the year. All he does then is just build back up his 50 hives so he can split them again next year. It's that simple. It's that legitimate. Will he ever make a full-time income doing that? No. But assuming his expenses are about $2,000 to build the nuke boxes and his time in there is worth another $1,000, that's a $7,000 profit in one day. Without a lot of, I mean, it's not a lot of work to take care of bees. It really isn't. Some sugar water, make sure their housing's proper, and especially in certain, like he's in a great climate. There's a huge, you know, natural uh, amount of, of nectar flow available th for, for a huge part of the year there. And since he's not trying to make honey, his life's a lot easier as a beekeeper because all he's doing is making more bees. And that's just, and I, what I'm, the reason I'm telling you that story is what I'm trying to get across to you is. There's so many people that are just trying to figure out how to do one thing to make a little bit of money, and it's important that you do it the first time because when you do, you become a person like Chris or a person like Jack, where there's always something. There's always something that you can do to put an extra $2,000, $5,000 in your pocket this year. And, and you end up having to decide which ones am I going to do based on how much I enjoy doing them, how much they return, and how much time that you have. And you prioritize. If this is going to put $10,000 in my pocket and this is going to put $1,000 in my pocket and they take about the same amount of time, unless I really, really hate the one for ten grand, i am doing that. I have to really hate it. Like I have to hate it like my face in a cheese grater hate it to not do it for that kind of spread. If it's two versus three and I hate the three and love the two, I'll probably go do the two. Because I have the luxury of doing that because we see things that way. And so when you talk, start talking about a legitimate business, even if it's not profitable, what I'm really trying to say to you is your mentality is wrong. Now, if you actually mean can it become legitimate and profitable, even if it's not something that sustains you with a full-time income, the answer is absolutely yes. I, I hope that makes sense. Great question, really, though maybe I, I hope I came at it the right way in understanding what you were asking. Well, guys, I hope you enjoyed today's show. I really do. And if you enjoy our show, please consider supporting us. Uh, one of the ways you can do that, there's a banner on the site now that says support my work on Patreon. Uh, if you don't want to be an MSB member, but you'd like to kick in a little bit, you can kick in a dollar a month, I mean, for the programming we provide and all of the other things that we do as well. And then the other thing you can do is you can support us by doing your Amazon shopping at tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. That's where we post all our reviews of Amazon items. And there's a link there you can click on over and see the Amazon deals of the day. And you can just search and buy whatever you were going to buy anyway, and you're supporting our work when you do that. But today I do have a really cool review for you. It is the Ent Sport Saltwater Fishing Pliers. 
I know what you're thinking. Jack, you don't live on the ocean, and you fish in the salt water like once a year. Why do you have saltwater fishing pliers? Because here's the secret. They, they work in freshwater, too. They really, it's not like they're like, oh, can't use them. It's fresh. No, really. The reason I use saltwater pliers is because every fisherman probably has a rusted-ass pair of uh, cheap needle nose in their tackle box that they'll eventually throw away and throw another cheap pair of needle nose in there. It will be rusted by halfway through the season. Um, these are built out of aluminum and stainless steel and tungsten. Translation, they don't rust and they don't corrode. With a little bit of maintenance, they will last a very, very long time. They're not cheap, but they're not expensive. I mean, when you think of good tools, good tools generally uh, cost a few bucks. These are uh, not really expensive. They're $24 with free shipping on Prime. So that's that's not too much to pay for a really good tool, especially something that you're if you're a fisherman and you're going to use them often. They're also multifunctional. They have a little kind of little pick looking tooth thing at the end. It's for opening split rings. If you're a fisherman, you know why you need that. If you're not a fisherman, you, you probably don't need these pliers. Um, they have a tungsten carbide cutter, which means it holds its edge really well. What I found with a lot of cheap fishing pliers is within a couple weeks of heavy use, you go to cut some heavy nylon braid or something like that, and it just won't cut. They're just dull. Uh, tungsten holds its edge very well for a long time, and they're, they're pretty easy to sharpen as well if they ever dull down my habit yet. Just a great tool. They also come with a sheath, and they come with a little bungee cord attachment to them so that when you drop them, they just kind of bounce around instead of go down in the water and you never see them again because, you know, when you drop, that's part of why fishermen use cheap needle-nose pliers you get for $1.99 on the, the tool counter at Tractor Supply, right? Because if you drop them in the drink, I'm out two bucks. It's a beer and a half. I'm, I'm good. I'll, I'll just get another pair. Um, these you don't want to lose. They're, they're a very good tool, high quality. So they have that bungee cord and that sheath, so they're right there and available for you when you're fishing. And uh, the other thing I really like about them, and this is something that some people like and some people don't, they're spring tension open. So when you put them in the sheath, obviously it holds them closed, but when you take them out, there's a spring that causes them to open. And to me, that's very convenient because usually when you're fishing and you're reaching for pliers, you have one hand. So simply being allowing them to open in your hand and then being able to close them is easier than trying to open them on your body or with your fingers extended out or whatever, to me anyway, personally. So I think they're great. I've tried a bunch of different varieties, a bunch that were supposedly saltwater related. They still rusted or corroded or had problems. Uh, one pair that I had high hopes for when I checked them out on FakeSpot, they had a D. FakeSpot, you can check Amazon reviews to see if they're legitimate on FakeSpot.com. I put these guys through it. They got an A+. So I, I ordered them, and I've been using them now for you know several months. I love them. I think they're great. I think they're going to last a long time. And uh, if you're looking for something like that in your fishing kit, these are the ones that I would recommend. And again, after reviewing, checking out, and using a lot of varieties over the years, I, I think I've really found the best that's available. You know, without you know mortgaging a kidney or something like that to be able to afford them. How much money are we going to spend on freaking fishing pliers? I think twenty three, twenty four dollars. That's that's enough, and we should be able to get a good tool for that. That's what this gives you. So now it's time for our song of the day. And uh, since we've started doing songs based on the year, this will be our first one that's a country song. And I think it's very, very appropriate that we do this for the year 1989. From the, about 88, 89 <clears throat> through the 90s was when country made a new run. And some say for the worse, some say for the better, But what, I, what I'm really talking about, and I think it is for the better, is that a greater outreach and a larger fan base. Um, 
Alabama was the country band that really made this happen in the early 80s and through the early 80s. And they were kind of the only ones. They were the only ones. Like, if, you, if, you if you didn't really like country, but there was some country you would listen to, it was probably Alabama. And in the late 80s, early 90s, more and more artists started to come out and fuse a little bit of kind of rock and roll, of classic singer-songwriting, think Dan Fogelberg-type stuff from the 70s, uh, into a new version of country music. And some of it was crap, and some of it was very, very good. And probably the biggest rock star, if there's rock stars in country music, to come out of this period was Garth Brooks. And this song is from Garth Brooks this year, and it's an incredibly wonderful song. And I couldn't think of a better song to end the, end the week with on a, on a Friday. You know, this is a perfect Friday song. And John Adam, who's put this list together for me, you know, could not have known this was going to be a Friday. It just happened to be the song that he picked, but it worked out perfectly. And it's called If Tomorrow Never Comes. And, you know, the song is it, it, written from a standpoint of do the people that you love know that you love them so much so that they would never doubt it for a moment if you died today? They would never look back and think, I wonder if they really cared. They would know for the rest of their lives, every day of their lives, that you loved them and you cared for them. That's a strong enough message in of itself. But you know me, man. I'm big on the dash thing, right? When they bury you, they're going to put you in the ground. There's going to be two years. There's going to be a year you were born, the year you died, and a dash in the middle. That dash is you. And to me, that's what this song's really all about. What are you doing with your dash? What are you doing with your dash? Are you impacting people's lives? Are you making the world a better place? Are you doing things for yourself and for others? Are you making your family more stable? See, when we start taking a walk toward liberty and individual freedom, when we start doing that and we start moving forward, we start pushing ourselves forward, when we do these things, well, when we do these things, we are not just helping ourselves, we are helping our families. There is no doubt that if, if something tragic happened, if I got hit by a gravel truck, you know, on the way to the pick materials up place, and, uh, and, and, and lost my life today, that my wife would have more financial stability in her life because of the hard work I've done building this business than if I was still working as a regional sales vice president for Fluke Networks. Making what many people would consider a very good income. And having a job that most people consider would be a really great job. You know, where there's a lot of bullshit in it, but there's also a lot of going out to restaurants and hanging out with people and playing golf and, you know, it's, it's basically a smoozer job. That's what you're doing. You're out smoozing people and making sure that they, all your distributors are happy, uh, making sure your reps are doing their job. It, it, it wasn't really physically hard. It was just emotionally draining. And, and it, but, but taking the steps to do something like this, And it doesn't matter what it is. It might just be that you're, you know, transforming your homestead into some sort of food producer or whatever it is. But teaching your children how to do that, so that when they're gone, if when you're gone, whether it be soon or hopefully way into the future, not only they are left with the knowledge that you loved them and cared for them, but you loved them and cared for them enough to teach them how to live, to teach them how to provide for themselves and their family, so that can be passed on from one generation to the next. Great song for this weekend. Hope you enjoyed today's show. And if tomorrow never comes, I hope that you're leaving a legacy behind. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Sometimes late at night 
I lie awake and watch her sleeping. She's lost in peaceful dreams, so I turn out the lights and lay there in the dark. And the thought crosses my mind if I never wake up in the morning. Would she ever doubt the way I feel about her in my heart? If tomorrow never comes, will she know how much I loved her? Did I try in every way to show her every day? And she's my only one And if my time on earth were through She must face this world without me Is the love I gave her in the past Gonna be enough to last If tomorrow never comes I've lost loved ones in my life Who never knew how much I loved them Now I live with the regret That my true feelings for them never were So I made a promise to myself each day how much she means to me and avoid that circumstance where there's no second chance to tell her how I feel cause if tomorrow never comes will she know how much I Try in every way to show her every day that she's my only one. And if my time on earth were through, she must face this world without me. Is the love I gave her in the past gonna be enough to last? If tomorrow never comes So tell that someone that you love Just what you're thinking of If tomorrow never comes